This morning's New Testament reading comes from the book of Ephesians, chapter 5, verses 15 through 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. The word of the Lord. Good morning. Glad to be here this morning. I want to say a special thank you to uh, this church for supporting us all the way over here in South Carolina, supporting us in Mississippi. And the, uh, the question I get a lot is, why in the world would you plant a church in the Mississippi Delta? And I, uh, I wonder that late at night sometimes myself. Uh, people come from all over the world every day to our, I guess I can call my hometown now. So I think you have to live in the Delta for about 200 years to call it your hometown. But we've been there for a little over 10 years, so I'll I'll call it my hometown. But people come every day, and they come there uh, not because we've got anything cool, but they come there uh, because the blues started there. And everybody argues, uh, where was the exact spot where the blues started? And most people would agree it's like three miles outside of Cleveland. And there's this little, what used to be a plantation there at, uh, at Dockery Farms. And people, you can, it's funny, you can go look at the book there and there have been people every day from, you name it, anywhere in the world. People pass through Cleveland, Mississippi. Uh, and the reason they come there is because they want to check out where the blues started. And... You know, when you think about it, uh, it really is a great place to plant a church. When you think the gospel always goes into broken places. That's where God's grace flows, into the, the places that are broken and the places that are hurt. And so what better place than the place where the blues started? I, uh, I remember in seminary reading a, a lecture uh, and a guy was saying that, that culture changes from the top down, which is pretty obvious. You know, culture changes out of places like New York and London and L.A. and, you know, big cultural centers where, and we want church plants there because that is, there's no doubt about that. Uh, cultures change from the top down. But he made a, a great point. He said that revivals always start from the bottom up. Revivals start in small places, in obscure places. And if you've noticed in our culture, uh, our culture cannot seem to break racism. And we've tried in so many ways. I'm, I'm in the military, and the military is like on a quest to produce diversity, and they just cannot do it. Uh, the public schools can't do it. Uh, nobody's been able to do it. Culturally, we cannot do it from the top down. And so if you read Revelation, though, we know that the church is going to achieve that. Like in Revelation 7, there's this picture of every tribe, tongue, and nation worshiping together. And so we have this confidence in the church to know uh, that in some form or fashion, there will be revivals in this world. And, and I do believe that in our culture, in our time, uh, what that's going to look like is the multi-ethnic church. And so in, uh, in that vein, it does make sense. Uh, that we decided to plant uh, right in the middle of where the blues was started. So please do pray for us. Uh, pray 
Uh, pray for revival. Pray that, uh, that great change would happen in our culture uh, that would come out of small places, even places uh, like Cleveland, Mississippi. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that. If you want to talk, I'd love to talk more about it. Um, and thank you so much for supporting us. So let's, uh, let's get back to Ephesians chapter 5. And uh, before we do that, let's pray together. Our Father, we pray that you would open up our eyes and open up our ears. We know how easy it is to deceive ourselves. We know how easy it is to get entangled in sin, to get entangled in fear and doubt. And so we pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come alongside of us this morning as the advocate, as the friend, as the comforter, as the one who lifts up our heads, uh, dig us out of our shame, out of our darkness, out of our brokenness, restore us to what uh, you always meant us to be. And we pray that you would give us uh, great hope, give us peace, you'd give us great love for you and for one another. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. In 2013, I was in Afghanistan, and I met a guy named Mike, which is not his real name. You've got to make people's names up when you're up here, because uh, we don't do that. Preachers don't tell each other's, tell your secrets to other people, especially from the pulpit. Uh, so Mike was, uh, he came to meet with me and Mike was very upset as uh, a lot of people were over there. And this was, as we talked for a while, I found out that this was his seventh deployment. He was married, had two kids, and he had been uh, over there seven times, which ended up, you know, for most of us, it was anywhere from six months to a year that you were over there. So Mike had spent almost seven years uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I remember just thinking to myself, uh, because only two of those were uh, deployments he had to go on. Five of them were voluntary. And I thought, why would anybody volunteer to come to a place uh, that is nicknamed the Suck? Like that's what everybody called Afghanistan. So why would you, why would you volunteer to go there for almost five years of your life? And what I realized after talking to him for about an hour was something that I felt when I was over there. When, when you're over there, you have purpose. And when you're over there, there's this sense of like, I'm, I'm a part of something. I'm a part of the mission. I have meaning. I have, there wasn't any of those. I mean, yeah, it wasn't fun, but there was never a day where you woke up and you're like, I don't, I don't really know what I'm doing. I don't really, really have a purpose. Don't really fit. You know, I don't have any meaning. Every day you woke up and you're like, man, I'm, I'm a part of a mission. And as he explained that to me, it just, I got it. I understood why somebody would volunteer five times to put themselves in this type of situation in a place where you could very easily get killed every day was because when he was back home, he felt what I think a lot of, I'll just speak for men because I'm not a woman, but uh, I, what a lot of us men feel is this just kind of sense of purposelessness and, and lack of meaning. You know, when you look at like uh, two books that are not really good books, they're not even well-written, which I don't mean to knock to the authors, but The Purpose Driven Life and The Shack, like those were 50 million copies were sold or 
I guess they're still selling. But think about that. 50 million copies of two books that aren't good. Like, they're just not. I'm sorry. Like, you read them. They're not good books. Uh, But 50 million copies, they're obviously tapping into something. Like, something in our culture that people are like, hey, I'll read a terrible book because it's... I at least feel it. It, it. it taps into something. And what it taps into, I think, is what Paul is talking about in this passage. Is that we desperately need meaning. We desperately need purpose. And so, you know, I titled this uh, The Noonday Demon. Because uh, the Desert Fathers, that's what they, when they talked about the sin of sloth, which we don't use that word very often, even though I wish we did. I love that word. Sloth. Uh, that's, that's what they the, the terminology they used for sloth was this idea of the noonday demon this demon that sneaks in at midday and basically just says you know like what are you doing man like what, like really like, you, you might as well not even work the afternoon you know it's not a big deal nobody's going to notice and, or as my, uh, you know, I tried to title the sermon this, but uh, my wife first shot it down and then Tim uh, shot it down. But my granddaddy always called it lazy as hell. And uh, that's what we, you know, I could do a whole sermon about my granddaddy. But he, uh, I like that, you know, and that just kind of, because he didn't mean to be like theologically accurate, but he, uh, he was communicating something there, something that has obviously stuck with me that there's this sense of laziness that's not like just laying on the couch eating potato chips. It, it's a, it, really what the word sloth captures is this, this idea of that I'm going to put my energy and my time into things that don't really matter. And that really captures it of saying, hey, you know, which we went and saw uh, Incredibles 2 yesterday and the movie is kind of about this. It's like this whole theme of like, screen time and anyway I'm not going to go into that because that's not in the notes let's uh let's not talk about that and it just came out so I don't want to you go see it anyway point number one uh that's not that is in my notes point number one make the best use of the time that's what Paul says that's in the bible so we've been given a certain amount of time and we don't think about that very often that our time is limited And Jesus talks about this a lot. You know, he tells this parable in Matthew chapter 25. And, uh, you know, in the superscript, it's called the parable of the talents. And it's not necessarily, you know, talent as in like I have musical talent or something like that. It's talent in the sense of money that, uh, and I'm not going to read it, but you can go look at it. It's Matthew 25, 14 through 30. And it's a parable about this uh, landowner and he's going away, and he gives his servants uh, all money. And he says, hey, go and invest this money. And it's a really cool story because you think, like, when does that ever happen? When does anybody just say, hey, I'm about to give you a pile of money, and you just go do something cool with it? Like, that's pretty awesome. So you have these uh, three different folks, and two of them, they take the money and they invest it. And one of them, you know, he invests it in, like, Amazon, and it blows up. The other one, uh, he does pretty good. And the last one, though, he, um, let me just read you uh, what he says to him. It says, uh, the servant with one bag of silver came and said, Master, I knew you were a harsh man, 
harvesting crops you didn't plant, gathering crops you didn't cultivate. I was afraid I would lose your money, so I hid it in the earth. Here's your money back. But listen what he says. The master replied, you wicked and lazy servant. If you knew I harvested crops and didn't plant and gather crops I didn't cultivate, why didn't you deposit my money in the bank? At least I could have gotten some interest on it. Then he ordered, take the money from the servant, give it to the one with the ten bags of silver. To those who use well what they're given, even more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who do nothing, even, even what little they have will be taken away. So the master had these expectations that, hey, I'm giving you something to invest. I'm giving you something that you can use to make change and to grow and to make an abundance. And two of them did it, but this one of them didn't. And it says because he was afraid. I was afraid to go and do it. I was afraid he didn't trust the master. He didn't trust his intentions for giving him these talents. And then he didn't trust himself. You know, somebody who understood this well, this idea of meaning, and this idea of that, that we have expectations on our lives was Viktor Frankl, a guy who lived through the Holocaust. And he was living at the same time that Sigmund Freud was living, and they were in the same business. And so Freud believed that people were driven by pleasure. Like the main thing that, that, that people need to really to live was pleasure. And that's what drives people. And, you know, Freud would say the reason you wake up in the morning is because there's something pleasurable that day. Like, and if there's something, something that's going to feel good, something that's going to make you kind of forget how hard life is. Now, Frankel, uh, he had a different opinion. He wrote a great book called Man's Search for Meaning. And his, his thought was, is not that human beings are driven so much by pleasure, but by meaning. And so he, he looked at people who were, the people who had given up in the concentration camps, the people who died the quickest, versus the people who lived and made it through the Holocaust. And this is one thing that he said in the book. And he's looking at two different guys. And he said, in both cases, it was a question of getting them to realize that life was still expecting something from them. Something in the future was expected of them. For one man, it was his young child who was then living in a foreign country. For the other, a scientist, it was a series of books he needed to finish. And so, Frankel looks at these guys who ended up not committing suicide. And the reason they didn't is because he said that they believed, he helped them to believe, that life was still expecting something from them. That there was something in the future that, that they had a calling to do. Something that they were, that, that, that was designed uniquely for them. And so they had the sense of, I've got to do this. And so the question for us is, and I, I think this is something for the rest of your life to ask yourself. You know, why do you get out of bed in the morning? Do you have a purpose? Do you have a mission? I mean, that is the number one thing that I tell guys coming back from overseas hey, you better get a mission, and you better get one quick. Like if you don't have a, if you come back from something that has required that of you, and you were so focused in, laser focused on the mission, and you come back to the States, and you're floating, and you're toast. Like you better have a clear-cut mission. And, And I don't, you know, now that I've thought about it more, that's not just for folks who've been overseas. That's for all of us. 
to be able to say, hey, I need to know that God has put me on this earth for a purpose. And, and like Paul says in this passage, to make the best use of the time. All right, the second thing is this, is that the days are evil. You know, that, that should be obvious, right? That should be one of those points that's like, all right, the days are evil, point number three. Uh, I hope you know that, right? If not, just like open up the news app. I've had to quit doing that on my phone, the little news app, because it's just like, I guess it kind of, uh, I'm sure it does. It like listens to me talk and all that. And so it's just like picks up, it's like always this negative, it's all like, there's probably somebody in here. It's like always happy news because you're very optimistic. And but mine is always like, who got killed or what blew up or what you know. It anyway. The days are evil, and evil. You know, if you evil is not like uh, evil is more like cancer. You know, it's something that attaches itself to something good and something healthy and ruins it. Right. So evil is not like the church has often fallen into this kind of misstep where we said, you know, like dancing is evil or drinking is evil or this or that thing is evil. It's not that. It's that evil attaches itself to good things, right? And, and so, you know, anything in our lives, when you think of how sloth or laziness works, like or really any of the seven deadly sins, like how they attach themselves to something like work or ambition. And it just twists it. It perverts it. And so, you know, when you think about, I mean, there's a million things with, with kind of the idea of laziness or sloth that, that, that how it works, how it attaches itself to things. You know, one thing I would say that I, you know, just personally that I will use is, uh, I didn't bring it up here, thank God. One of the rare times I don't have it with me is uh, my iPhone. You know, you're, if you have your phone with you, I think for me, that's one of like the biggest temptations to sloth. The biggest temptations to, to really the idea behind laziness, which is just like, hey, I've got all these things in my life that really do need my attention. And that's not like a pride, like, a, oh, you know, nothing could function without me. Like that, that's silliness. But the flip side of that is that there really are things, you know, and for like Father's, Father's Day, like three of those things are sitting right there for me. Uh, they need me. Dads, you know, the kids, they, they really do need you. And, and one of the things that draws me away consistently is this good thing. Like, it's a, it really is a good thing. My phone is a good thing. I, I've used it. I mean, it has these amazing capabilities. I use it all the time for good. But then... It can also be this thing that just keeps me distracted from my real calling. From my real calling to be a husband, which, you know, requires a lot. My real calling to be a father. My real calling to shepherd my church. All those things that, that I'm so easily distracted by this little thing that I put in my pocket. And so, you know, what do we do with that? Like, do we go the direction of, and I'm just like hating on books this morning, so I, I hope this, I don't need this to get out there, Tim. Can we just like uh, not record this? 
But for some reason, I'm just like going down the road on book. This is why I'm not going to write a book. It's because people like me will just talk about about it. But uh, John Piper wrote the book, uh, Don't Waste Your Life. Like, could there be a more shaming title? Um, Hey, bro, don't waste your life. Um, You know, try waking up with that every morning. Like, Get, do that for a month and then come talk to me about your deep, dark depression of every morning. Hey, I'm not going to waste my life today. Uh, Paul says, look, make the most of every opportunity. Like, listen to that versus don't waste your life. Uh, that's important. Like stuff like that matters. Like that, you're like, oh, that's just, you know, words and it's really not. Paul, in his letters, he's at pains to, the the way that he starts a letter is he reminds the church that they're saints. Like even the church in Corinth that is going crazy and losing their mind and getting drunk at communion, he tells them they're saints. That's the way he starts the letter. And even in the context of Ephesians chapter 5, if you go back and read the first verse, Paul reminds the church there, they're the beloved children of God. And so Paul's not looking out of the church and saying, hey, you better pay attention in the next few minutes or you're going to waste your life. He's saying, hey, let me remind you, you're the beloved children of God. That's who you are. And, and because of that, God has called you, all, every one of you, he's given you unique gifts and talents and unique callings and the world needs you. Like, there are places in this world that, that they need you. You know, I've noticed that in my, in my job of pastoral counseling. Like, I have a, obviously, like you can probably tell by the way I preach, like I have a certain way that I counsel people. And for some people, that is not what they need. It is the last thing they need. They do not need to meet with me. Because I will do, like, I'll just sit them down and be like, hey, why aren't you doing this, 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 and this? Because this will make your life work. And They don't need that. They need maybe somebody like you who has a much different personality than me. And they need your unique talents and gifts. And if you think about that in the context of this church, you know, Tim has been given very unique gifts and talents. But those will only serve so many people in here. You know, there are people in this church and in this community that need you. And for some of you, you're, you're out of the game. You know, Satan has done what he does as the accuser. He's taken you out of the game. And you're not in the game anymore. And there are people that need you to be in the game because God has given you talents and gifts. And so the last thing is this, is that God's grace will cause you to work hard. And I don't think we believe that in the church. What we believe is that don't waste your life will cause you to work hard. Now, that'll cause you to burn out. That'll cause you to be a jerk. God's grace will cause you to work hard. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 10. He says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. Listen, no, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Do you hear me? how many times he said grace in that passage? He said, God's grace caused me to work harder than all of the other apostles. 
God's grace to me, his undeserved favor of me, caused me to work hard. So, one of my favorite stories in the Old Testament out of uh, Samuel. In Samuel, there's, uh, and I think this, I hope this kind of ties this up nicely. There's a, uh, there's a kid named Mephibosheth, which I tried to name one of my kids that, but it didn't, didn't work out. So maybe a grandkid. Uh, Mephibosheth, he was uh, King Saul's grandson. And so Mephibosheth, he had the, I mean, his life was laid out for him. He was a prince. He, uh, you know, I mean, if you just think about what the privilege that he had. And you think about the, I mean, the best of everything. And when you, when he thought about his future, it was nothing but the silver spoon. Like it was, he had it lined up. But one day, his granddad and his dad were killed in a battle. And the Philistines were coming to attack them. And he was just a little boy at the time, so like a toddler. And the nurse grabs him to pick him up because they're being attacked and runs with him. And as she's running with him, she falls. And we don't know exactly what happened, but he was injured so badly that the text says he became lame in both feet. So imagine that. You have a a kid who the expectations for his life were nothing but charm and wealth and brilliance. And all of a sudden now he is a special needs kid growing up in a world where nobody cared about that. And now he lives in exile. So he goes from the palace to exile and he is a kid who's broken, physically broken, emotionally broken, spiritually broken. And he just lives in fear and hiding. Because look, I mean, think about this. The new king, King David, what does every other king do to all the princes that were in line for the throne? It kills them. And so not only does he have all this brokenness, physical, emotional, spiritual brokenness, but he also lives in fear of his life, believing that he is going to be killed. But he doesn't, what he doesn't know is that David is not a typical king. That, that David, when he looks out at his enemies who were in the house of Saul, listen to what the text says. He says, is there anyone else who I can show grace to? Is there anybody else? He's looking out at, at, at his enemies and he's saying, is there anybody that I can show kindness to, that I can show grace to? And Samuel tells us that King David is a man after God's own heart. And so I think for all of us, what we need to hear is that, you know, no matter how good or bad things are going in your life right now, I think we can all identify with Mephibosheth. This, that something in your life has happened to you, or kids, something will happen to you because the days are evil. And it will leave you feeling emotionally, spiritually, and possibly physically broken. And I I know what that feels like. And I bet bet all of you know what that feels like. And, And what it can end up being is you living in hiding. You living in fear. Like the guy with the 
that was given the one talent that was like, I'm just afraid. I'm afraid to do anything. I'm afraid of God. I'm afraid of my own ability to mess things up. And if you keep reading the story, though, what happens is David goes to Mephibosheth and he brings him into his home. He restores all of his land and property that would have been his as an heir. And he sits him at his table, at the king's table, for the rest of his life. And it's just this beautiful story of restoration. And it's a beautiful story of God's heart for us this morning. That that more than anything this morning, God is searching for people to show kindness to. That he's looking out this morning at us and he's saying, I just want to, you know, and maybe this morning you feel like his enemy. And that's the exact words of the text, that he was looking for people in the house of Saul, people that were his enemies, anybody he could show grace to. And so this morning I pray, my prayer for us is that you will receive that. You'll receive God's kindness to you this morning. You'll let him restore you to his table where there is healing for your brokenness and there's forgiveness for your sins. And you would see God's heart this morning. And you would hear him at the end of that of Matthew 25 in that parable. Listen to what he says. The master was full of praise. Well done, my good and faithful servant. You've been faithful in handling this small amount. So now I will give you many more responsibilities. And I love this last line. He says, let's celebrate together. You know, wouldn't it be great if you could get to that place where you say, hey, I'm using the talents and abilities that God has given me And he rejoices over that. And I rejoice over that, that I get to to make a difference in this world, to be used by him. And so if you've been out of the game for a while, God is inviting you back in this morning. He wants to use you. He wants to give you mission and purpose and give you an identity as his beloved child. Let's pray together. Our Father, I pray that you would help us to believe the gospel. Help us to believe that your heart this morning for us is a father who is searching for his lost children and that you simply want to show kindness to people this morning. That you want to draw people in by your love. And so I pray that we would see Jesus, we would see your heart for us through him. That we would see the way that he restored broken people. And so, Holy Spirit, would you continue the great mission and work of the church, which is restoring this world to the way it was meant to be? And would you use people who feel, who so often feel incompetent, so often feel weak and bruised and broken? Would you restore us to your place at the table that we might feast with you and that we might go out and be people who are like you, restoring this world? And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.